speaking, I was 18 years old at the time. I live in a small town in Belgium, not far from the French border. I love my city. It is a very pretty and peaceful city. Nothing dangerous ever happens there, and I always had a feeling of security while being there. In this city, there are a lot of schools, more than a dozen. So during the week, it gets crowdy. We meet a lot of people. But during the weekend and the holidays, when schools are closed, there was hardly anybody. It was a Sunday, and the weather was good. That day, I had to give a private math lesson in the afternoon to a little girl who lived 15 minutes from my house. So I walk to her house and everything is going well. The teaching class is over and I decide to go home. It was a beautiful day. I was enjoying my walk. I arrived in an alley where there was nobody. There was just an empty parking lot of a school. I continued my walk when I heard noises from behind me, like a woman in high heels. So far, nothing serious. Women in high heels is not exceptional. The steps get closer to me and the person ends up ahead of me so I can finally see him. It was not a woman in high heels, but a man of 40 years old, maybe. An extremely tall man. He was a little overweight. He wore very tight-fitting, leather-effect leggings. He had very straight, greasy black hair, and he wore wooden clogs. I couldn't stop looking at his feet, because I had never seen anyone in my life wearing wooden clogs. I found it very unusual. He continues to walk, and me too. He was already at least three meters in front of me when suddenly he stopped. I continued to walk normally. I was arriving almost at his level when he turned at me and started to speak. At first he asked me if I could tell him where the supermarket in the city next door was. I said to myself, it's okay. No stress, I'll just give him directions. I started to tell him that it's going to take a little time to get there by foot but I still tell him the way. From there he tells me, oh no, I'm looking for the way by car because I got lost. I come from France and I often go to this store. Several details alerted me. One, if he came here by car, then why did he stop in the city nearby to ask for directions by foot? In general, when a person in a car gets lost, they stay in their car and they wait to find a pedestrian and ask their way and then continue on road by car. Two, if he has been to the store several times, how is it that he got lost? Three, why didn't he call me directly when he was behind me on the way? So even if I started to find the situation a bit strange, I still showed him the way and decided to continue my way home. Before I had the time to leave, he stopped me again to ask, By the way, what do you think of my wooden clogs? Isn't that weird? I told him no. That if he likes them, then that's all that should matter. He should not be ashamed of his clothing tastes. He kept talking about his wooden clogs, and then he came talking about his leather-effect leggings. He again asked me my opinion about it, and I told him, It's okay. Materials like this are fashionable. Then he never let go of me. He continued to speak. He told me that he comes from France, that he was at a school here before, that he likes Belgium and that in his youth he would come often. All along I pretended to listen to him, to be kind, but deep inside there was an alert that was said to me, be careful, you're in danger. He did not inspire my confidence at all. His strange look and his feminine voice and his eyes, God, something dark emerged from it, and it made me feel cold in my back. 
I was trying to find a way to leave without him realizing my discomfort. In my head, it was very clear. I had to seem as calm as possible, not to show my fear. I felt that if he noticed my discomfort, I would risk something serious. So he continues to talk. I listen to him and it continues for a few extra minutes. It was extremely long to bear for me. The conversation is pretty basic so far, but that changed drastically when he started talking to me again about his leather effect leggings. He tells me he loves leather, especially women who wear them. It gives me a charm that it excites him. The conversation becomes very unhealthy. He became more and more specific in his words. Tells me about his fantasies of women who wear leather. The gleam in his eyes darkened more and more, and I had the impression that a monster was looking at me. Here again, I'm trying to look calm. I pray that somebody will pass by here so I could leave, but there was literally nobody. Just me and him. I thought of running away, but I quickly changed my mind. He was almost two meters tall, and I was just a little 18-year-old girl. I had no chance of leaving. My only idea was to text a friend so that she would call me urgently. It was very long. I can't remember the details exactly because it happened three years ago, and I was very traumatized. Anyways, I remained calm from the outside. He continued to speak. Deep inside me, I was crying. But I remained calm and I responded briefly to his words. His words became more and more trashy. I was alone in front of this man, but what he was about to say got me so scared. If you want, my car is parked not far away. I have a leather suit inside. Do you want to come try it on? I was looking at him straight in the eyes. I didn't know what to say. I was completely paralyzed and a miracle came. My friend calls me. I pick up the phone quickly. I speak to my friend in Spanish so that the man does not understand what I'm saying. I tell her that I'm in a dangerous situation, that there's a weird guy and that I'm scared. She tells me to go right now, to run. During the telephone call, I always kept an eye on him. He seemed embarrassed. So while I was on the line with my friend, I tell the guy, sorry, but I have to go. I have an important meeting. He looks at me and he tells me, yes, but are you still going to try on the outfit? From there, I tell him that I don't have time, but he won't let me go. Do you promise you'll wear it if we meet again? I told him, yes, and finally he let me go. Still, on the phone, I walked normally until I reached another street where he could no longer see me, and then I ran like I'd never have before back to my house. When I got near my house, I waited a few seconds to be sure that he didn't follow me. I had to make sure that he didn't know where I lived. And when I went home, I cried all of my tears. When I finally calmed down, I took the time to analyze everything that had just happened. I came to the conclusion that this man was not lost. This man did not come from France. His accent also confirmed that. When I met him in the street, he already was ahead of me, probably to verify that there was no one there but just us. He must have spotted me when I left my teaching class. I also told myself that he must certainly know the place to be so confident. He must have located the corner, a small quiet town filled with young people, with very little movement, far from his country. This man had taken my city as a hunting ground. I thought about calling the police, or hiding, and following him to his car so I could write down his number plate, but I did not do that. 
Following him was far too dangerous, and if I had been to the police, I should have warned my mother, but I didn't either. I didn't want her to worry. I never saw the guy again. Since that day, I kept asking myself what would have happened to me if I had met him overnight. I'm afraid when I'm in the street. I'm afraid when a car with a French number plate is parked near my house. This man has traumatized me, and I'm still, and I am still marked by the promise that he made me keep. I feel like I have signed a pact with the devil. I have the impression that his sentence meant one day we will meet again, and that day you will have no choice. I don't want that day to come. I'm even thinking of getting a taser to protect myself if it's illegal here. Unfortunately, the story does not end here. It continues a year later, in the summer of 2018, still in my city. You should know that I live in a residential street. There's always a lot of children playing in the street. Everyone knows each other in the neighborhood. I have a little sister who was 16 at the time, and a four-year-old little brother. We've never let them play alone without surveillance. When he played in the street, there was always somebody from our family watching him on the doorstep. This summer day, I was not at home. I went to a friend's house. When I returned home in the evening, my 16-year-old sister began talking to me, and she was very nervous. She told me that our little brother was playing in the street. My sister sitting on the front porch was watching him without taking her eyes off. At a moment, she saw a man staring at our little brother. He hadn't noticed that our little brother was not playing without being watched, because from where he was sitting, he could not see my sister, because she was hidden by a bush. The man started to approach my little brother when he finally noticed that my sister was there. He became embarrassed and stammered out a sentence. Excuse me, don't you know where the other city supermarket is? When I heard that sentence, I thought I was going to faint. I directly thought of the man who scared the hell out of me a year earlier. I stopped my sister from talking and I asked her, was he very tall? Yes. Did he have straight black hair? Yes. Did he have a particularly feminine voice? Yes. It was too much for me. Now I was sure it was the same guy. I knew that he had returned. I knew he had tried to take my little brother. All of the conclusions were true. This man is a predator. This man may be walking around my city right now to kidnap children. He may have succeeded. As I write down the history, I have never seen him again. I am afraid for the children who play in the streets, for the young girls who are walking around and who might not have had the same luck that my brother and I had. I'm scared when I have to come home at night. I'm scared of everything now because I know that a monster is among us. So please never let your children play without surveillance. Never let a stranger get to you and always keep your phone close to you. A few years ago, I was renting a house in Northern California. The neighborhood was just outside the suburbs. It seemed like the perfect balance of having space and having nice neighbors close enough to not feel isolated. The area had no street lights, so it was very dark at night, especially if there were clouds blocking the moonlight. It didn't bother me though. It made my little house feel even more quaint on the dark nights. I got home from work one day in midwinter. It was a cloudy night, so pulling up to my house, I saw only what my headlights and my front porch light illuminated. When I got out of my car, I caught a whiff of cigarette smoke. 
That was odd as I have never smelled that before around my house. I didn't see anybody nearby so I ignored it and I went inside. I had just got off of a shift for a few hours of overtime so I felt very tired. Even though it wasn't seven yet, I decided to take a shower and I called it a night. I woke up sometime later, sure that I had heard a noise outside of my house. I wasn't worried right away because my friend would sometimes stop by to use the shower after work on his way to his night classes. I even gave him a spare key so he could stop by even if I was not home. He would always text me though to let me know beforehand, and I had not heard my phone going off. I reached over beside my table and I picked up my cell phone to see if my friend had texted me. The bright light from my phone's screen and number pad had blinded me. These were the days before phones had a light sensor that would dim the screen in the dark, and this particular phone was so bright that I could use it as a flashlight. Through squinted eyes I could make out that it was nine something at night, but I couldn't tell if I had an unread text or not. I set my phone aside and I called my friend's name. There were a couple seconds of silence before I heard loud footfalls as somebody started running through the bottom floor of my house. I leapt out of bed and I ran to the closet. They were already up the stairs by the time I had opened the door and stepped inside. That house had three rooms upstairs, two bedrooms on either side of the hallway. The one I was in and a spare and a bathroom at the end. The bedroom doors were both closed and the bathroom door was cracked open. I heard whoever was in my house thunder down the hallway past my door and into the bathroom. Thank God that he did. That gave me enough time to open the attic access in the ceiling of my closet and hoist myself up. I had just started to lift myself up when the person ran back out of the bathroom. My feet were barely inside the attic when my bedroom door burst open. I heard footsteps run into my room and stop. When they didn't see me in that room, they ran back to the hallway and into the other room, which just had boxes stacked in a corner with some weights and a table where I painted my miniature models. I guess they decided that if somebody was hiding, it would be in the bedroom because they charged back into my room and turned on the light. A moment later, the closet door was ripped open. I was crouched in my attic just a foot or so away from the access, so I could try to stop them if they started to climb up. From my vantage point, all I could see was from about their knee down. They were wearing dirty blue jeans with frayed cuffs and worn work boots. After a few seconds of looking in the closet, they stepped away and I heard a loud crash come from my room, followed by a scream of frustration and anger. That scream was the most unnerving part of the incident for me. It reminded me far too much of my stepfather, who would scream in a similar way when he would lose his temper. He would eventually be put into a mental hospital for several mental disorders that resulted in erratic and violent tendencies. The man in my house ran back down the stairs. I heard crashes and clatters as things were thrown around and furniture was knocked over. I stayed crouched in the attic. I had left my cell phone when I ran for the closet, and I wasn't certain I could climb down without him hearing me. After some time, the noises stopped. I started counting slowly. When I reached 1,000, I decided it was safe enough to climb down and call the cops. The first thing I noticed when I exited the closet was the intruder had flipped my bed over. I assume in an attempt to find me. That was the loud noise that I had heard after he stepped away from the closet. I couldn't find my cell phone, so I went down to the landline by the bed to call the police. I waited in my room until I heard them call out from downstairs. The first floor was a mess, 
but I had expected that. Chairs had been knocked over. The sofa had been flipped. All the books, pictures, and knickknacks I had on my shelves were thrown across the floor. The cupboards in the kitchen had been opened, and all the boxes and canned food had been thrown onto the ground. As far as I could tell, the only thing missing was a single knife out of the wooden block in my kitchen. The police checked the house from the top to the bottom. They found that the side door had been forced open by something like a crowbar. They also found a few cigarette butts along the fence line with some foil and an empty pen tube which the police said was often used to smoke meth. So they think he had been watching my house for a while. I realized that he must have been out there smoking a cigarette when I got home. They collected up the evidence and told me that I should stay with family for a few nights and get that door fixed as soon as possible. I opted to just not sleep. I moved a shelf over to block the broken door, and I spent the next couple of hours cleaning things up. I would often go to the window with a flashlight and shine it along the fence line where police found the cigarette butts and the foil, but I didn't see anything. The next day I called to have the door fixed and motion lights installed at the back and the sides of my house. I ran a phone cable up into the attic and added a landline. I never wanted to be stuck up there without a phone again. Nothing else happened in that house, though. I lived there for another three years without an incident. One more precaution I took was practicing getting out of the bed, going to my closet, and climbing into the attic as quickly and quietly as possible. I even kept at it when I moved, except now I go to a crawl space at the back of the closet instead of an attic. I try not to think about what would have happened if I had been a bit slower getting into the attic, or if he hadn't gone into the bathroom at the end of the hall first. I live in an apartment complex right next to a 7-Eleven, literally a two-minute walk from my door. So since all this quarantine lockdown mess, I've been staying up later than usual, till maybe 2 or 3 a.m. most nights. So last night, a little bit after 12, I had a taste for some chips and decided I'll just go across the street to the 7-Eleven, which I go to regularly. I make my way over, and on my way I had to pass this man who was browsing on the Redbox kiosk. I didn't think much of it. I go inside, I get some snacks, pay, head out the door. As I'm coming out, the red box man is literally staring dead at me with these scarily bright, light blue eyes. But not wanting to freak myself out even more, I say to myself, maybe he's zoned out and maybe he's deep in thought. I wander into La La Land myself sometimes. I was trying to make myself more comfortable having to walk past this strange man. So I'm heading back into my apartment complex, which is on the side of the street. It has a creaky gate door. I realized as I was walking I had never heard it slam behind me like I always have before. I look back and this man is right behind me. Not close up on me, but still definitely following. Once again, trying to ease my mind, I'm thinking he must be going home. But I also noticed he didn't have any discs in his hand for as much as he was at the kiosk the whole time that I was in the store taking my sweet, indecisive time. So not wanting to come off as scared, I keep my pace. But I probably should have sprinted, because forget being nice. I'm literally just a few steps away from my door, which is upstairs, and the man randomly calls out to me, Hey, do you have a lighter? Out of instinct, I turned my head to the fact that I knew somebody was speaking to me, and I responded, No, I don't, sorry. I didn't want to just go up my stairs, 
because I don't want to let this man know exactly which apartment I live in. So I was planning on walking around until I lost him. But he asked me another question. Can I use your bathroom? I tell him, no, sorry, my roommates probably would not be comfortable with me letting somebody in this late. I don't have roommates, but I sure didn't want this man getting any ideas thinking that I was by myself. I keep walking, but this man was still following me. I simply ask, do you live around here? And he tells me, I have a buddy that does, and he was supposed to meet me across the way, but maybe he fell asleep. I've never been here before, but I do know his door is number 201. Could you help me find it? 201 is my door. If you have a friend that lives over here, why are you asking to use my bathroom? I knew this man was lying and up to something. I quickly come up with 201? That should be right past the pool area next to the laundry area. My friends are waiting for me so I should get going. My gut told me to head to the car though. Because what if he watched where I was going and decided to give me a surprise later on? No. I watch too many movies and I read too many stories to be that dumb. So I start heading towards the parking lot, not running but definitely walking quicker than before. When I realize that the man is chasing me at this point, I hurry up and I pull my keys out of my pocket and I get into the car and I immediately lock the doors. The man starts pounding on my driver window, telling me to open the door. I can't help but to focus on those creepy blue eyes but I noticed he was reaching for his pocket. I start up my car before I can see what he's going to pull out. I heard a pop, but I didn't give a but I didn't care at that moment as long as I could get out of his presence. I drove maybe 5 minutes down the street to a gas station and I called the police. Waiting on the phone to arrive, I noticed what that popping sound was. This wacko popped my back tire with probably a switchblade. Of course, when the police arrived and went to check the area, the guy was gone. They did question the 7-Eleven clerk, and he let them know that the man has been there a few times since last week, and he has never had a problem, but is obviously homeless. I'm still shook up about what had happened that night, and I'm going to chill on the late night trips to 7-Eleven for a while. This is the scariest thing that has ever happened to me. And what makes it worse is that had things gone down differently, I might not have been here to tell this story. First things first, I'm a girl, about 5'7", and around 130 pounds. This happened to me about three years ago when I was in my early 20s and still a student, living in a very safe area. Growing up, I had loved martial arts, and having grown up in a small rural town, I take what I can get. Karate? fine. Judo? Sure. Kung Fu? Why not? Taekwondo? Sign me up. I love martial arts. I still do, because they help me discipline my body and my mind, and grow my confidence. It had been a few years since I moved out to my country's capital to study, and I had kind of fallen off of the martial arts wagon at that point, with college taking up most of my time. I should also mention that at the time I lived with my younger brother and our cat, we lived on the first floor, the second floor for all my American people, right next to a military camp and a patch of forest, which leads to a creek. On our back balcony, there was a circular metal ladder that would lead up to our balcony and the kitchen door, which, of course, we always kept under lock and key, except for when the cat wanted to go out, we would unlock the door, and he would go down to the outdoor metal stairs to find his cat friends and play. 
I commuted to my college every day by walking 30 minutes to a bus stop, then riding the bus for an hour, and then walking another 10 minutes until I made it to campus. And when it was time to go home, I'd have to do the same thing all over again. So as you can imagine, it was very tiring. I would be out of the house every single day, from 10 in the morning until almost 10 at night. So when I would come home, I would be exhausted. I don't believe in premonitions much, but I do believe in instinct. And for quite a while, I felt like something was up with that patch of forest behind my apartment. I felt watched. Maybe it was the blackness of the patch of forest that made me feel uneasy, because there wasn't a single light there, and the outdoor ladder looked like it descended into an abyss. You could take three steps into that patch of forest, and you would be under complete cover of darkness. It made me feel weird, because even though I couldn't see anything, I knew that something was up. I had no proof, but I knew it. I was in class one Wednesday afternoon with my best friend at the time, and a professor came in to pitch an internship to us. Internships aren't very well known in my country, so professors actually have to argue their case about why, as students, we can benefit from this. My best friend, Kay, was very interested, but when the professor listed off the requirements, she realized she couldn't apply as her GPA was not high enough. This led to Kay having a crying fit after the class was over, which led to a panic attack, and it got so bad that she had to call her boyfriend to pick her up from the campus. And since I didn't want to leave her alone, I stayed with her until her boyfriend showed up and got in his car with her. The conversation in the car was basically me and her boyfriend trying to console her and help cheer her up. I asked her if she wanted me to go over to her place so we could all hang out but she said that she was okay and didn't want to put me through the hassle of commuting home the next day. She lives a full hour away by car, so two hours away by public transportation, so it was decided that they would drop me off at my house, and then they would go to theirs. We get to my house around 1900, a full three hours before I normally come home. I hug her, tell her to text me if she needs anything. I thank her boyfriend and get out of that car, glad that I'll be home early for a change. I went in through the main entrance, climbed up the stairs to the first floor, and put my key in the lock. I opened the door and called my brother's name like I always did, but I got no response. The house was dark, except for one light in the room, where the front door opened in, and it was eerily quiet, but I felt my stomach tie into a knot, because even though I couldn't hear anything, I could feel that somebody was there. And when my instincts talk, I listen. I turned right into the hallway that leads into our rooms, and I saw my brother's door slam shut as soon as I got into the hallway. My brother's room is on the end of the hallway on the left, facing my own room, which is on the right of the hallway. My first thought was that my brother had taken a shower and forgot to get a towel, so he made a run for it from the bathroom, which is next to my room, in embarrassment. But then I heard muffled whispers coming from his room. It sounded hushed and pressing. I still had no reason to be afraid, but I was on high alert, because I thought my brother and his friends were planning on jumping out of his room and scaring me, and I was not about to let them get that satisfaction. So I inched down the short hallway, through the darkness, and before I knock on my brother's door, I took a look in my room. It was a mess. My mattress was off my bed. My clothes and my books were all over the floor. My jewelry box was empty and thrown on my bed. All in all, it looked like a tornado had gone through there. And the hushed whispers in the next room sounded extremely pressing and anxious now that I was close. Because though I had tried to tiptoe as silently as possible, my steps had been audible. 
I realized what was happening, and I went ballistic. At that moment, I lost it. My fight-or-flight instinct kicked in, and it kicked fight into maximum overdrive. The words danger, thieves, fight hit me like a truck, and I threw my whole weight on my brother's door, busting that door down so furiously you think it owed me money. I saw nobody in the room, but it was also a mess, and I knew what I had heard. So I ran to the balcony door. I ripped the curtain out of my way and went through the open balcony door, just in time to catch one of the thieves right-handed after he jumped off the balcony ledge. Looking back on it, he looked like a normal dude. Black hair, normal height, athletic build, big earring on his left ear. But at the time, he looked like an effing monster to me. A vile, putrid, home-invading piece of crap monster. I started screaming unintelligible things as I saw him stumble around obviously having hurt his legs, before he got back upon his feet and ran away. They were gone. I was safe. But then it hit me. Where was my laptop? I ran into my room and tore the place apart looking for my laptop, but it was gone. I started screaming and crying. The unfairness, audacity, and the cowardness hit me like a steel toe to the stomach. I screamed and cried like I was in a Greek tragedy. I am not rich by any means, and neither is my family. I had an old laptop, which is probably worth pennies secondhand, but I needed that laptop for my schoolwork, and without it I could not finish my semester. Not to mention that I don't have many real-life friends, and the majority of my friends at the time were online, so if I lost that laptop, I lost them too. My laptop was lost, and so was I. I felt violated, dirty, less than. I was afraid I'd throw up or pass out. Maybe both. I was taking such rapid and deep panicked breaths that my vision began to blur. In the most panicked and grief-stricken state I've ever been in in my life, tears streaming down my face, I called my mom to tell her what had happened, and she told me to call the police. It took me almost a full minute on the phone with the operator, telling her again and again where I lived, who I was, and what had happened before she understood me and sent somebody over to help. A few days later, I was talking with my mom about the incident, and she told me that something had hit me hard. I come from pretty much a trilingual household, and she told me that when I called her that night, she couldn't make out what language I was speaking because I had been so panicked. Makes sense why I had to repeat myself over and over to the operator. I started running around the house like a lunatic, checking every door and lock in a frenzy, until I got to the kitchen and saw that the window had been broken. Without thinking, I had slammed it shut. Stupid, I know, but I was beside myself and I was not thinking straight. My brother came home a few minutes later, and when he came in, he saw me panicked, crying my eyes out, and speaking almost unintelligibly. He came to the bedrooms and he saw the damage. He told me to go sit in the living room and calm down. I did as he said and I tried to calm down, but I jumped at every sound and started crying worse, telling him that I was sorry that I had gotten home too late and that our laptops were gone. The house seemed so big to me at those moments, so dark, so hostile, and I felt so small and helpless. My brother called me over to my room and showed me a pillowcase full of something, and when we looked inside, we found both laptops, all my jewelry, my old phone, and some other things. They had been right in front of me the whole time, but I was so messed up that they didn't even register. The police eventually came about an hour later, and didn't do much, so my brother and I took it to the police station and filed a report of the incident. And since I had seen half of one of the culprit's faces, they asked me to come in for identification. 
They even sent somebody over to dust for prints. Nothing ever came of it. The police said that since they didn't even have a backpack to put the loot in and resorted to using one of our pillowcases, they were almost 100% positive that they were junkies. We had the outdoor metallic ladder ripped off of our kitchen balcony, much to my cat's displeasure, since that's how they got in. We also installed several motion-detecting lights. For the next few months, I was constantly on edge, and every time I passed near some suspicious characters who hang around near my usual bus stop, I felt a violent rage boil inside me. I caught myself looking for the man that I had seen, ready to beat him within an inch of his life. But I never saw him or heard his creepy whisper partner again, and my brother and I moved away from that apartment a few months later because I never felt comfortable in that apartment again. I picked up kickboxing, and because it had made me stronger, it has helped me feel safer, and I always now carry a knife with me. I still think back on that encounter and realize how stupid I was. What creeps me out the most is knowing that that night, there had been nothing but a thin plywood door separating me from two potentially dangerous men. Even if I know that me busting into my brother's room like a lunatic is what scared them off, because of how stupidly fearless I was, I also realize how bad it could have gone. They could have had guns or knives. They could have had pepper spray or a chain or whatever. And there were two of them and only one of me. And if they had ganged up on me, even with the adrenaline having turned me into the doom guy, I don't know how much of a chance I realistically stood against two men high on whatever they were on and desperately enough to break into an apartment and loot stuff into a pillowcase. Had they been willing to put up fights, this could have ended very, very badly for me. What I do know is, is that I probably still would have busted through that door. So to the creepy, cowardly bastards who dared break into my apartment and try to rob me and my brother and ended up traumatizing me so bad that I had to move, screw the both of you. I grew up in Ohio in the 70s, and me and my childhood friend Joe were outside all the time when we could manage it. Joe lived on a farm that bordered a pretty big forest, and my parents would drop me off in the morning, and we would stay in the woods all weekend. We had only come out for school. We loved pretending we were frontiersmen. We would build shelters, traps, practice making fire with sticks, the whole nine yards. When we got to be in high school, we got this notion to pull a stand by me. This was based on the movie of the same name that had just come out. The idea was that we would walk the railroad tracks out in the country, but instead of looking for a dead body, we would find cool bridges to fish from and camp a little ways off the tracks. Of course we knew this was dangerous and we would likely be trespassing, but we were kids. We had a lot of fun. We did find beautiful rivers. We discovered bridges that nobody went to. We fished and we hid from trains. At night we camped in the woods just near the tracks and made small hidden fires. Nothing bad ever happened. It was idyllic. In fact, it was so fun that we did it multiple times. Never had a problem. After high school, me and Joe went our own ways. We both left home, but always stayed in touch and always tried to coordinate visits so we would see each other occasionally. One summer in the mid-90s, it worked out that we were both in town for about a week. We would do stuff with the family during the day, and at night we would either catch drinks at a bar or sit outside of Joe's house around a fire and talk about the old days. One night, Joe and I started talking about our Stand By Me trips. Nostalgia and beer were one hell of a mix. 
so we decided to take a day, walk the rails, camp one night, and walk home. The day came. We started out early morning. We had my wife drop us off in our old spot where we used to start, right outside our hometown. She thought this was absolutely crazy and made sure to mention it. When she pulled away, Joe suggested that instead of walking the usual route, we would take the opposite direction, just to be adventurous. We knew the land well, and we had a map, so I gave a, what the hell, and off we set. The day went fine. It was fun, and a little bit sad, but in a good way. We found a bridge and we sat on the edge, smoked a joint and moved on. We had no fishing gear, but we brought some canned food and other stuff. Before the night started setting in, we picked a spot to camp out. It was a thick, forested area, trees on every side of the train tracks, so that you felt like you were in a tunnel. We had brought small hammocks to sleep on, but before we set them up, we decided to do a little scouting of the perimeter. Now this is what we would do in the old days, too. We would walk the area a little bit to make sure some dude's house wasn't just over the hill, and we were actually camping in their yard. We walked maybe a hundred feet or so into the woods and up a small incline. We figured if we didn't see anything from on top of this short hill, we would be fine. But when we got to the top, we saw an old building down at the bottom, about a hundred yards into the woods. It was barely visible. We pondered over what to do. We both assumed it was a sugar shack or something, because there didn't appear to be a clear road into it. From where we were, there didn't look to be anyone there either. All was quiet, no movement could be seen, no lights. We decided to walk a little closer just to make sure. We came down the hill very slowly, and as we neared the building, we saw it wasn't a sugar shack at all. It was an old church. It looked like it had been abandoned for years. It was a squat, sagging building, whose wooden planks were almost black from years of moss and rot. A cross still stood at the top of the place, also weathered black. None of the windows had glass, and there were no doors, just open doorways. We got close enough to see inside. There were rows of pews. There were rows of pews, and a built-up section in front of the preacher to stand. We didn't go all the way in. We didn't want to. Beyond all of that, there was no sign of anyone else. No footprints, no paths, no roads. It was an abandoned church. We left immediately and went back up the hill to our spot that we had picked to camp. Having a hill between us and the church made us feel better, but we were still a little bit uneasy. We chalked it up to the natural creepiness seeing a church in the middle of the woods would elicit. Besides, at this point it was dusk, and we just decided to rig up our hammocks and go to sleep and move on at early morning. Night set in, and as we lay in our hammocks and start talking, we began to hear something in the direction of the church. Our conversation about it went a little bit like this. Do you hear that? What is that? It sounds like people singing. And it did sound just like singing. We both slid right out of our hammocks and hunkered down, straining to hear more. We listened for a minute or two, and the singing continued, but it wasn't getting louder. Finally, we decided to creep back up the hill and see if we could spy where the sound was coming from. We could still move very quietly in the woods from the old days. It was second nature to us. The moon was barely out, but it provided enough light so you wouldn't have to walk right into a tree. But it was near pitch black. We didn't use flashlights as we crept slowly up the hill. And we didn't talk. When we got to the top, we saw a light in the distance. It was coming from the church. 
and the singing was coming from inside. Joe and I put our heads close together and had a hushed conversation that boiled down to, Can you believe this? The light looked to be a candlelight from the way it flickered, and though we tried, we couldn't make out what was being sung. It sounded like church music, but in a different language. We sat and watched for a while, trying to see who was there, but we only saw the occasional shadows. We had no intention of getting close either. We had about a football field length between us, and we aimed to keep it that way. The singing continued for a bit, but then it stopped. After that, a booming male voice began to chant. I was already freaked out, but this voice thoroughly scared the crap out of me. It sounded like some Old Testament preacher that you would see in movies. But again, it was like he was speaking in a different language, because we could not understand a single word. Eventually, it got to where the singing male voice would say something, and then a bunch of voices would answer in song. This lasted for a while, and then they all broke into this long, sustained wail that just kept getting louder. It got so loud and so disturbing that I covered my ears, and then it stopped. At this point, I was just getting ready to say, let's get out of here, when Joe put a hand on my shoulder and hissed, they're coming out. We were far enough away that we couldn't make them out really well, but what we could see was a line of figures walk out the open doorway all holding hands in single file. We could see some of them had flashlights. They began to sing again, and the light from the flashlights began to move towards us and the hill. We booked it back down to our campsite, grabbed our stuff, and ran to the tracks. Once there, we ran down the tracks in the direction that we had come from. After a few minutes, we stopped and looked back. We saw the lights coming down the hill. They were moving erratically, like whoever was holding them was shaking them. We continued to run in spurts and walk as fast as we could. We eventually stopped seeing the lights and came to a road. By our map, we knew a small town was about 15 minutes down, and we walked there, got to a 24-hour gas station, and called my wife to come pick us up. My wife and other friends all just thought it was some kids messing around, but I heard those voices, and they sure didn't sound like kids to me. Not sure who those people were, but it was definitely the creepiest thing that had ever happened to me out in the woods. Back when I was in the military, I was based out in California. This was pretty much right at the start of the housing bust, and I found myself newly divorced following a deployment. As such, I could no longer live on base and I had to move. I quickly discovered that it now was the same price or cheaper to rent a house instead of an apartment off base, so I got in touch with a realtor who worked with residents of a local gated community. As a newly single female with zero family in the area, I thought extra security could only be a good thing. I soon found the perfect house. It was amazing. Had a wraparound porch with a view of the lake in the center of the community. Had trees blocking my views of my neighbors. An awesome kitchen. And tons of local wildlife. I could easily see myself recovering from what had been an ungodly rough year. The owner mostly lived overseas, so I never really dealt with him. Except when I moved in, but he seemed very nice, if a bit particular. He obviously loved the house, so I didn't think much of that. The two times I needed something looked after, his brother came to deal with him as he was a handyman of sorts. I always found it weird that him and his brother looked like they could have been twins, to the point where I thought his brother was him when he came to pick up the dryer when I needed it fixed. Literally, he picked it up and carried it out in his arms. Funny thing about PTSD, 
is that lots of normal things seem weird, while strange things seem normal. So I never really thought of the landlord brother situation as odd until after. Maybe it was normal, and the whole oddness of what happened is setting off my paranoia. I don't really know. But yeah, landlord odd, brother was apparently the Hulk. Both spoke to me like I was their kid who needed very strict instructions. I enjoyed my time in the house. My pup loved it too, because the next door neighbors had dogs for her to play with. But my PTSD and other mental issues had me on a path headed straight for a medical separation. But then the president issued a series of rollback programs, a chance for military members to separate ahead of contract in anticipation for the Middle Eastern conflicts to be abandoned. And my commander highly suggested, if you're in the military, you know this basically means do this or else, for me to take the early separation. There were a few reasons surrounding this, but the main was that the squadron knew they were the reason I was mentally messed up. And there were more than a few of the people who had it in for me still at the clinic I was assigned to. Those people kept writing me up for things that no one else got written up for. Examples of this, accidentally jamming the shredder that jammed at least once a week, leaving the front desk attended while I was having an anaphylactic attack, having a panic attack which left work unattended because I was literally curled into a ball in the corner. Of course, my brain took most of this stuff at face value, and I figured it was okay and I deserved it. But my commander was trying to protect me as best as she could and getting me out of a clearly hostile work environment ASAP. So I applied and was approved for separation. Now this meant I was leaving my lease before the year was up. I forget if my landlord just decided to be nice or if I had to pull out the law about military members being entitled to early release from a lease when their duty assignments changed. Probably the second one, because he was not happy. I didn't really have the mental capacity to care too much about putting him out, though, because my scrambled brain all of a sudden had a lot of military paperwork and processing to deal with. Not to mention the fact that the whole idea that I was separating felt very surreal in the first place. I'd always thought I'd be a lifer. I didn't tell any of my neighbors I was moving out, only because one of my friends knew when exactly I was moving out. And even my movers didn't know exactly when, because I stayed there on an air mattress for about a week after they picked up my things. I was camping my way across country on my way home, so I had a lot of stuff to move into the car. To the best of my knowledge, no one on the base knew exactly when my house would be vacant either, because I actually stayed in a motel off base for a few days after I moved out, just to make the final days of the last minute paperwork easier.